Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast. Nolan, you've cheated again. You can't help yourself. Always picking movies from the 70s. It isn't a bother though. Don't you worry about that for one little minute because I'm very excited to actually talk about this movie that we're talking about today, Nolan, as it's something a little bit different in style to what we're used to seeing. But I happen to have some thoughts on this movie that it actually feels a little bit older than it is. And that's a weird thing to perhaps say when we're talking about a movie from the early 70s. But I hope when I elaborate on that later on, you might understand what I'm saying. Nolan, what blaze of glory have you decided us to talk about today? The 1970s seminal disaster classic, The Towering Inferno. I use that term loosely because... You can't mention disaster movies in the film circle without talking about The Towering Inferno. It's arguably the most famous one. It is... uh, Seminal is a perfect word for it. Incredibly famous. Incredibly, really... Quite... I suppose you could call it groundbreaking, but it does come at that time in the early 70s. And it certainly isn't the first one. Because I actually think that a, a far better disaster movie of a very similar style comes Poseidon Adventure before Poseidon Adventure which has been covered on this show the Poseidon Adventure is I think a great disaster movie it's the same producer as the towering inferno Irwin Allen it's got a very similar kind of feel to it it's got a similar kind of structure to it but I think there's a I, I think there's a lot more kind of engagement that you can have as a viewer in the Poseidon adventure than maybe I felt when watching The Towering Inferno. But you are entirely right in noting its importance in the realm of disaster movies, a movie genre we do not delve into a great deal on It's a Wonderful Podcast, Nolan, really, mainly because not too many huge disaster type movies were were made in, in the really in the years that um that we tend to focus on they they capture certainly these ones from the early 70s they capture a certain fear within society i think in very similar ways to to what horror movies do you know they 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 play on fears quite a lot of the time disaster movies whether it's you know fears of isolation as as in the poseidon adventure you know fears of not being able to escape or fears of modernization and fears of a changing world which i think comes into play when we're talking about the poseidon adventure but anyway in terms of disaster movies nolan to start us on episode 206 of the main show, It's a Wonderful Podcast. Do you even like disaster movies in general? I think the best disaster movies probably, for me, came out in, like, the 90s. So like, you, you're uh, a fan of your own Yes. Like, your Independence Day, uh, 
that one about the volcano in Los Angeles. They seem to, to be really Dante's Peak. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, they seem to have really hit their stride in that time, and then you got stuff like the day after tomorrow. And I think the idea of them being good probably ended with 2012. Which, uh, remember when people thought 2012 was actually real? Yeah, that was a time, it was. Oh, the world's going to end, it's not going to end, it definitely is going to end. People are gullible, Nolan. We know this, though. That's not a new fact, is it, really? The disaster movies should have ended then because we just recently had another one by a director who's infamously known in the disaster movie genre, Roland Emmerich. I think yes. 90% of his movies are disaster films. He likes he seen... them, Nolan. Yeah, he just had that one about the moon falling out of the sky when there's well, an alien right. planet, which is ridiculous. And so fucking silly. But I think, no, The Towering Inferno, what sets it apart from like those Roland Emmerich films is there's a degree of realism to it. There is. I would I would give it that. that there certainly is. There is also, I think it is helped by the fact it's got incredibly competent performers in it. As well. Steve McQueen's Paul Newman, your Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire being in this movie is so fucking funny. It kind of is, though, right? Why is it so hilarious that old-ass Fred Astaire's in this movie? Like, doing a really good job, but he's just like, why does Fred Astaire look so old? I don't want to see old Fred Astaire. It's a bit ageist, really. I don't mean to be ageist, because Fred Astaire is absolutely great in his supporting role in this movie. As is William Holden, who is, you know, kind of slightly older to as we're used to seeing him in, in the movies we tend to cover starring William Holden on this show. As but, is O.J. Simpson before his life went up in flames. Well, <laughs> yes. How many how many fire jokes do you think we're going to uh, we're going to put into this episode, Nolan? I, I, a lot well, would be my guess. Well, there's a show I watch called Still Game, which is a very popular Scottish sitcom. And there's a particular episode where one of the characters, uh, Winston, an old pensioner, can't afford to buy a new TV, so he decides to build one. He puts his little homemade projector in his house to put on the towering inferno for all of his friends. And uh, in sitcom fashion, the thing ends up breaking and his curtains catch on fire. I love it. But there's this one part in that episode which has always stuck with me, and it's about Fred Astaire actually being in this movie. There's a little argument amongst the pensioners where they're talking about whether Fred Astaire's in the Towering Inferno or not, because it's so weird. And then one of the characters comes up and says, ah, yeah, Fred Astaire was in the Towering Inferno. He comes out and he's like that. Hold on the knee, the building's in fire. (laughs) For God's sake. And I really oh, wanted to see Fred Astaire dancing in this, and we didn't. Well, well, no, he didn't do a showpiece dance, did he? No, but you saw him little bits in the little background in some of the sweeping party shots. He was dancing. The way he was with walking little... with his briefcase, honestly, it looked like the start of a musical number. I mean, yes, actually, at the beginning of this movie, he was swinging that briefcase a little bit too aggressively. I, I must admit, I did kind of notice that myself but what i i mean what i was saying about in terms of the fact that this movie has incredibly competent performers which is really the draw 
for me. The the spectacle of it, yes. The suspension that it builds, yes. Or the suspense that it builds, yes. The suspensions that it built fell. The suspensions were terrible. The, The structure of the building was... Well, no, the structure was fine. The electrical quality of the building, Nolan, was absolutely terrible. And we, we've got to blame it all on creepy-ass-looking Richard Chamberlain. Oh, uh, yeah, is... because every disaster movie needs that kind of character, the dickhead who either starts the thing or doesn't believe in the thing until it's too late. Exactly, exactly. And you got all your nice people, your Paul Newman as your architect, Steve McQueen as your fire chief i mean this is uh, i do like that they dedicate the movie to firefighters though yes i did i did want to mention that as well it's nice when i mean we had it recently actually didn't we with dirty harry i think dirty harry is actually dedicated to like the san francisco police department maybe it was a thing in the 70s also nolan why do you keep picking movies that are set in san francisco do you have just this unconscious desire to pick 70s movies set in San Francisco. Is I mean, could you imagine if to... Dirty Harry crossed with this movie, Dirty Harry versus The Towering Inferno? I would love to see how how Dirty Harry would deal with this situation, to be honest. He'd just go in and shoot people. He doesn't fit in the movie. It's a totally different style of movie. Can you imagine Paul Newman... Just coming up like, oh, well, I'm just trying to save these people, Harry. Bang, 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 I have a magnum. <laughs> That's all Harry would do. Ironically, shooting more of those kerosene barrels, which why is that next to an electrical system <laughs> in the first place? All It was like something out of Tom and sense. Jerry. <laughs> it was a little, all home alone. All <laughs> logic and sense are thrown right out of the window. When we're talking about a movie like this, because they are precursors this movie is is very much a precursor to those roland emmerich type san francisco gets hot in the summer right well san francisco yes who's gonna want to stay in a glass skyscraper during summer well san francisco has its own like like kind of weird climate because it's in like that bay area so it is quite famously kind of windy and a little bit colder than the rest of California. It's also kind of North California, isn't it? So it's not like desert also LA. A, a glass sky, a skyscraper made out of glass. Come on. Well, look at all the new skyscrapers that you get—the tallest buildings in the world. They're at I mean, least this, double glazing. I mean, this this building in this movie is the new tallest building in the world. That's what it is. It's just known as the Glass Tower. I love how it's shot a lot of the time as well. Just the actual yeah, the... tower. You get so many shots where it just pans up and then keeps panning up. It just gives you this real scale of this building. It's, such, it's so good at doing that. I think it's made really well as a spectacle movie. I really, really do. The reason I also say it's a precursor and a very apt precursor to those Roland Emmerich, um, more modernized, I suppose, disaster movies, is that it's also incredibly overblown. It's so, so long when it really doesn't need to be. This The Towering Inferno's two hours, 45 minutes. 
It's got Independence Day I can understand 90. being long. Not like Day After Tomorrow or 2012 or the Moon movie. But like Independence <laughs> Day is the movie. only one I will give the credit for the runtime fitting. Nolan, you're not allowed to like Independence Day anymore. You're not allowed well, to like anything in which Will Smith hits someone. <laughs> that's that's just offensive. <laughs> Even though it's an alien and a dying one at that, it still constitutes something that publicly you're not allowed to like anymore. So no uh, good no good things can be said about that, I'm afraid. I personally think that if they make another Men in Black movie with Will Smith, they should just get rid of the forgetting tool <laughs> and just have him slap people. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Keep that memory out your fucking mouth. Oh, dear. Oh, no. We've started. <laughs> We've started too stupidly here, I think. Well, not too stupidly. It's not possible to start too stupidly. We're talking... A naturally fairly illogical kind of turn your mind off for two and two hours and 45 minutes and watch this enormous movie run its course what i like to refer to as a sunday afternoon movie nolan as well yeah Something i'm you pretty put on sure itv day. Put on sunday afternoon yeah sunday afternoon movies as well they they have to be a certain length and they have to almost be too long because they have to take the entirety of Sunday afternoon to watch. Can't watch yeah. two of them. Yeah, stick your roast dinner in the oven, watch the Sunday afternoon movie on ITV, and then it's done. Exactly. If you but... like your uh, beef medium well, then you put on a little bit of a, a shorter film. If you like it well done, you put on this. Ironically, because it's about fire. Your meat burns, your meat cooks even quicker because the heat just emanates from the screen. There's that much fire in this movie. It's almost, it's in, look, it's an impressive special effects display. I, I've got to give the movie credit for that. And I was talking about the performances and the performers within the movie before. And what I think sets it apart from the, the overblown 90s disaster movies kind of era is the fact that the the actors are actually good <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> you know, in, in some of those Emmerich movies and... You're telling the, me John Cusack in 2012 is not like a phenomenal well, performance? No, not really. But other things of that sort of ilk, they're not exactly filled with... They're filled with, I suppose, movie stars, aren't they? But they're not filled with the kind of class of cast of characters uh, cast of actors I should say that this movie is you, you know Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, William Holden Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire Robert Vaughn Robert Wagner I think although we don't trust Robert Wagner really do we because he did murder Natalie Wood depending <laughs> on who you believe OJ Simpson as a security guard but OJ Simpson as a security guard, which again, we don't trust that in the slightest, do we? Obviously. Although actually, you know, to be to be to be fair to old OJ, I think even he's quite good in this movie. But again, it's just it comes across as a little bit 
strange to be you know, seeing you, OJ you Simpson play as like You couldn't have got like Carl Weathers or uh, Billy D. But, Williams. Well, the thing is, the thing is, we forget, Nolan, we forget that OJ Simpson was was not a criminal at this time in his there life. Even then, wasn't he a football player, not an actor? He was a football player, but he was also both. He was like, though, he was one of those athletes that also acts. He was he was also like really good at football. So, so he he was like the rock of his time then. Well, almost. I would go as far. I'd probably put it more along the lines of LeBron James. That's fair. I, I guess if you could, if you could compare something like that, um, but yes, it does come across obviously in hindsight as, as quite. It'd be like if they did a disaster watch. movie in London, and then they have all these great British actors there, and then out of nowhere, Wayne Rooney. <laughs> he was really good at football, but he's not an actor. But he was really good. <laughs> That would be awful. That would, no, I don't like that. I don't like that in the slightest. But I do like seeing all these people in this ensemble because they they are all great. And some of them sure get far more to do than others. And I wished Faye Dunaway had more to do. I really do because I think Faye Dunaway is an outstanding actor. But she is too often relegated to simply being Paul Newman's girlfriend in this movie. Yeah, that is a downside of 70s filmmaking for you. Not all 70s filmmaking, though. And Let's not, you know, kind of, let's not look down on the 70s in its entirety. But yes, no. okay, I, I get your point. Yeah, the one actually that does stick out to my mind as being like a true character actor is Robert Chamberlain because he does exactly what you want him to do in this movie. He is there to be a smarmy dick who the audience hates and therefore wants to get the most either painful or embarrassing death in the movie, which I'd argue he does. Yeah, he probably kind of does. I mean, there's some really kind of nasty deaths in this as well, as you, as you would expect. As you would expect, there's a hell of a lot of burnings. Which no, I no. respect, actually. Uh, let's give some credit to the stunt team of this movie. Oh, my God. Because yes. they're actually on fire. This is like before CG took over everything. Like, if they made this movie nowadays, it would not be as effective. No, you spoke, you know, at the, the very, very start about the fact that this movie has a sense of realism to it. And that is entirely true, even though logic is kind of thrown out the window in favour like of that being Dwayne Johnson an entertaining movie, movie. Skyscraper. Yeah, but in favour of being an entertaining movie, that's thrown out the window. And in favour of being an entertaining movie, kind of, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief for some elements of it, some kind of over-theatrical, over-heroic kind of scenes and rescues and things like that but it is very strangely enough given the fact that it's in the world's tallest building it's very grounded it certainly feels very grounded and that 
I would argue is exactly also what the Persigned Adventure do does as well. And that's obviously, like I said, from the same producer. The reason I think I prefer the Persigned Adventure is because I just feel more connected to those characters, I think, in that movie. And I think it's because you are pretty much entirely with just those guys for that entire movie because that's more of a it's kind of more of an escape movie than a rescue movie you know you kind of get both the rescue and the the or the rescuer and the rescuee in the tower and inferno in the Poseidon adventure you are literally trapped with these with this group of people who are just trying to get from room to room before while the boat sinks and the water come, keeps coming up and then you know they nearly drown and some of the death scenes in that are really poignant shelly winters her death scene in the Poseidon adventure when you've got grandpa joe jack albertson her husband just kind of holding her in his arms it is it's incredibly emotional to watch and unfortunately i didn't feel that level of emotion in in any of them in this movie and i think it's just because it didn't feel quite as focused on our core ensemble because there was all the people running around the place and charging around with fire hoses and party goers and all sorts you know there was there was loads and loads and loads of people all at you know kind of at all times really in the tower and inferno and you you don't get that in Poseidon adventure so i think that's why i like the Poseidon adventure it also feels a little bit structured like uh oh we we have to get out of this room and then we're in the next room and what's the problem in this room okay we solved that and then the next room so it's kind of i almost call it a video game kind of structure which i think works for Something like a disaster movie. Yeah, I get that. And I don't necessarily think The Towering Inferno has that either, because I think it's more interested in kind of, you know, kind of flitting between the characters and seeing where they're at in terms of trying to whether rescue people or escape themselves or cover up some strange affairs they're having or cover up the fact that. Oh no, I saved four million dollars on this building by not wiring the electrical up to the architect's drawings. And then William Holden nearly strangles uh, Richard Chamberlain, which I really do quite like. Um I like seeing a I like seeing William Holden get kind of angry in this movie. I I I, I did appreciate that. Um, and you were talking about Richard Chamberlain before playing incredibly smarmy very well. I just find it hilarious that he um, is is in my mum's favourite movie of all time, which is The Slipper and the Rose, which is the really overly elaborate Cinderella movie from the 70s. And he plays the prince. So, you know, if you think he can play smarmy whatever his name is in the tower and inferno I, I don't even i forget his name uh he, he also plays you know cinderella's prince in the slipper and the rose there you go there is also a fine line between i think the thematic content of the poseidon adventure and this movie so 
I feel like Poseidon Adventure, that's almost like nature taking revenge against man-made structures going into its like domains and stuff. Whereas this is more a reflection of your own hubris and sort of a capitalistic structure, like destroying yeah. dreams, essentially. Because you can yeah. imagine this was Paul Newman's dream and the fact that one little oversight results in this. That's all he's going to be remembered for as an architect is, oh yeah, you're, you're the dude who's burning, building that burnt down. Yeah, and obviously that's what... You know, that's what William Holden's also really focused on because he's the owner of the building. He just wants kind of at the start when the fire's kind of just breaking out and he's getting these phone calls from fire captain Steve McQueen. He's like, right, William Holden, you've got to get your people out of this party because the holding it's basically the opening night of the world's tallest building. Everybody's there, you know, all the fancy people of the city. And he's like, you've got to get these, you've got to get these people out of there. You've got to move this party. William Holden's giving it the no, I'm not doing that. There's nothing to worry about. I refuse. And then he kind of cooperates a little later on. I'm glad that it didn't take William Holden too long. I, I wouldn't have liked to have seen a villainous William Holden in the towering inferno. I, I, I don't like. You got to think that fire's been going on since I was trying to time it. Like it starts pretty early on in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, you got to wonder how long it's been spreading up until like the big blaze comes out. Right, comes out of that door when that kind of storage room doors finally open, and it's just you get that big whoosh of roaring flames, and that one dude totally sets on fire. I mean, it is kind of horrible. It is kind of, it begs the question, Nolan, and this is a horrible question. Would you rather die by burning or drowning if we're continuing with uh, our Poseidon adventure comparative? I mean, look? neither of them are quick deaths. But no, neither are pleasant, really. No. I would much rather go for the drowning because I do not want to feel my flesh melting. I mean, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good. I don't want to be like that cunt in Robocop. No, 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 no flesh melting, no Raiders of the Lost Ark face melting situation for Nolan. Just nah. some. Uh... Also, I'm terrified of fire. Fire is terrifying. Did this movie scare you, Nolan? Was this was this a horror movie to you? It. I mean, I'm already put off by skyscrapers anyway. <laughs> Do you not like you're not like going up skyscraper? What's the tallest building you've ever been at the top at? The Burj Khalifa. Yeah, that's that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. Fair enough. I um, went as far up as they yourself. would let me. Yeah, you've just probably way tied to been Tom higher Cruise. than I have. I can't imagine. Well, it's I, like I, I remember imagine. the I remember the feeling that the whole of Dubai had when that place was getting built and the sort of camaraderie around it. But then as it stands there, you're just like, yeah, it's just a big fucking tall building. What's it doing? Did your legs oh, go wobbly when you reached the top? Also afraid of heights. So, uh, Oh dear. But yeah, the, the towering inferno is, is not a good movie for you. Is it really? I mean, I can enjoy it, but like I remember hearing that window cleaners on the Burj Khalifa get paid so much because there's such a high danger with the job. Oh, God. 
But could you imagine coming in for your shift like, oh, fuck, I've got to go up the top of the Khalifa and clean the windows again today. Let's hope this harness doesn't break. I would question who even sees the windows up there. I don't see the windows from the outside. Just clean the inside of the windows. You'll be fine. You need to clean the outside of the... I mean, you do need to clean the outside of the windows, don't you? The rain... Oh, no, there's no rain in Dubai. There's rain, like, twice a year in Dubai. Oh, what a terrible climate. <laughs> terrible climate, Nolan. The Towering Inferno... Would you could start the Towering right Inferno in. in Dubai just from the climate. Never exactly. mind. Just from the sun. You don't you don't need some dodgy electricals. You just need the heat of that particular area of the world. Although I would could you imagine a okay, imagine if they remade this movie but Tom Cruise was starring in it. Oh, so they'd burn the whole building again and he would actually scale a burning building. He would though. He would, though. There'd be no stunt work. There'd be no sets or anything like that that's, you know, obviously used here. He would full-on do it because he's just insane and I don't trust him. I was going <laughs> to say I don't trust him as far as I could throw him, but I could probably throw him quite a distance given that he's a tiny person. <laughs> that was a horrible joke. I shouldn't have made that joke. I do apologise to small people. But not Tom Cruise. But not Tom Cruise, no. Just all the nice small people. Ironically, you should get Tom Cruise to star in a remake of The Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. No, no, no. There was a remake of The Poseidon Adventure because we covered it on the show and, and there was a deja vu and me and Janine did it and and it, 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 it was bad. No, and it was not. Was it, all I could imagine is that they made the effects better. No, 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 it didn't. Oh, it's worse. It's, it's worse. There's nothing wrong with the effects. Are you saying there are things wrong with the effects in these 70s disaster movies? No, there is nothing wrong with them. No, but that's Perfect. the only reason people remade movies in the 2000s was to improve the special effects. No, it was to play with CG when they didn't need to. And also... If the Towering Inferno was remade in the vein that the Poseidon Adventure was, because the Poseidon Adventure's remake, I believe, was just called Poseidon, this would just have to be called Tower. <laughs> Ironically, the books that it's based on. <laughs> just Tower. What a boring title. What's that movie about? It's about a tower. It's actually the Towering Inferno. Well, we can't tell that. Idiotic titling, Nolan. I don't like idiotic titling. Which is why no. I like the title, The Towering Inferno. You know exactly what you're getting. Well, let's uh, get to the part that everyone's expecting us to talk about. Yes. The death scenes. Death burnings. Falling from great heights and suffocating on smoke yeah, that's basically uh, what happens Nolan what is your favourite death scene in this movie it's a toss up between Richard Chamberlain's death which is just yeah. hilarious and well deserved and that one woman who falls down and then turns into a cartwheel on the way down <laughs> it's like that dude in Titanic who hits the propeller <laughs> <laughs> oh that's horrible 
Oh dear. Titanic, that's a good question. Do you consider Titanic a disaster movie? Or a yes. romance movie? I think the disaster and the romance elements play fit perfectly in, in that movie. Like there it never overtakes the other. Would do, is that not also the case with this movie though? There are too many characters to focus on in this movie as opposed to Titanic, whereas Titanic's very focused on Jack and Rose. Well, yeah. This is more of an ensemble cast. I don't think Titanic is I don't think I could call that an ensemble film. It's really DiCaprio and Winslow. Yeah. I mean that that is, that is fair, but I'm just saying there's there's a hell of a lot of romantic plot in the Towering Inferno. Uh, Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen, right? Uh, Faye Dunaway and uh, and Paul Newman. Paul Newman, yeah. Well, sorry, Faye all Dunaway. I got them mixed up. Paul Newman. Uh, Steve McQueen loves like the job. Steve, Steve, Steve McQueen's McQueen. just in love with the job. He kind of is, though. I do like Steve McQueen in this. Actually, I think. I think I read somewhere it was it was kind of contracted that Steve McQueen and Paul Newman had to have the exact same amount of lines in this movie <sighs> because there was some sort of petty reason that they both had. And that's why the kind of dual build at the start, so you can never quite tell who's top build. Because there's some sort of ridiculous, you know, it's the same Vin Diesel, The Rock situation from Fast and Furious, you know. Stop taking over my movies, but I'm better than you in that kind of situation. No, literally no one except them cares. Pretty much. But I think Paul Newman, uh, if I remember what I read rightly, got quite annoyed because Steve McQueen doesn't show up until 45 minutes into this movie. He's the fire chief. He doesn't show up until 45 minutes into this movie. And I think, you know, 45 minutes should be coming up to at, at the very least a third of the way through this movie. And, and you still have two hours left of the actual movie by the time you've already watched 45 minutes of it. I'm not complaining about long movies, Nolan. I'm complaining about movies that are unnecessarily long. If your movie is long... And it is justifiably so perfect. If your movie is short and is justifiably so perfect. But stop making movies that are too long than they need to be. Yeah, your, your problem's more with pacing than I think the actual length. Ex well, yes, exactly. That That is true. I... I personally don't think we needed 40 minutes of setup with the characters in this movie when we all know we're here to watch a burning build down. Exactly, exactly, and we did get that, and I don't think the pacing is this movie's strong point, and I do think with, like I said, lesser actors, lesser performers, it would have felt at times a little bit like a chore, and I did enjoy this movie, I did end up enjoying this movie, I really appreciated the way it was made as just this grand spectacle of a movie. And strangely enough, which I, I alluded to in my kind of intro to the episode, I think this movie kind of, whether whether consciously or unconsciously, but it, it seems so fairly obvious to me, is kind of 
Hollywood trying to keep some of its old Hollywood glory going into the 70s. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the more popular American movies of the 70s are obviously kind of fairly, you know, heavy dramas or dark movies by author directors, you know, the, the new wave directors, Coppola's, Scorsese's, that kind of situation, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get this movie that feels so much like one of those huge 60s spectacle movies where, you know, old Hollywood was still acting like old Hollywood. I also read that this was the first dual production between Warner Brothers and Fox, which I think is a really interesting thing. So it's almost as though both of those studios are going... We really wished it was 10 years ago still. Can we try and make it 10 years ago again, please? And they tried, and they did so by casting people like William Holden and Fred Astaire. And to a lesser extent, because yes, okay, he was kind of big and up and coming in the 60s, Paul Newman. And mm, slightly less so Steve McQueen, because he kind of embodies late. 60s more although the magnificent seven which i've temporarily forgot about so yes i suppose he falls into the paul newman category of actors similarly but certainly obviously holden and fred astaire really harken back to your golden age of hollywood which i think is what this movie's trying to do it's trying to be something totally different to what most movies were in the early 70s, which were a whole new style, it's all, it almost feels like, you know, it's a movie for the masses, a movie for everyone. A, cr- a crowd pleaser. A crowd pleaser. A box office success, rather than a incredible movie that, maybe isn't for everyone, like a lot of the movies that were being made in the early 70s in America. So I I kind of, that idea just kept knocking into my head as I was watching this movie, it just felt like, and that's why I like the the fact that we've covered it on this show, because I think it's, uh, it's almost a nostalgic movie for a time that wasn't even that long ago when it came out. But obviously that's what we like to focus on on this show as well. It is looking back on that time with fondness and with celebration. Ultimately, I think, whether, like I said, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, I think that's what this movie's doing. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that, actually. It's... Uh... I feel that if I was a person in the 70s and I saw this on a movie poster, that'd be the movie I'd be watching that night. It's a great poster as well, actually. I should say it's a really good poster. It's a high concept kind of thriller. It's the kind of thing I could imagine like, oh, you've seen that Terror Inferno? Oh, we're going to it next week. Do these people have to be ridiculously Scottish? (laughs) 
That's <laughs> just how my mum would talk about movies. Do they have to talk like McGonagall? <laughs> oh dear, no. Let's go and watch the Towering Inferno, Albus. I imagine Dumbledore really liked the Towering Inferno. I've got no reason to believe that that could even be possible, but that's a weird thing I've just said. I don't, I don't know where my mind even went there. Probably really fancy Steve McQueen, Dumbledore. Possibly, possibly. Does tend to like blonde people, doesn't he? So, Yes, actually, the best part of trivia I read from this was after seeing this film, novelist Roderick Thorpe had a dream that same night about a man being chased through a skyscraper by gun-wielding assailants, which was the inspiration for his book Nothing Lasts Forever, which was turned into what movie? Die Hard. Yep. Okay. I like that. Influences, Nolan. Now, could you imagine if this movie was mixed with the plot of Die Hard, where Hans Gruber and his guys are trying to get money out of a burning building? (laughs) What an incredible, overblown mashup, even more so it would be. You know, some people... uh, No, I'm not going to insult Die Hard. I can't really insult Die Hard. It's a pretty phenomenally structured action movie. Um... But it does also, you know, have some parts of a tower on fire. Yeah, like the top of it. It's, you know, it is a towering inferno in its own right. But no, I mean, this fire. I don't don't think Alan Rickman was acting in the 70s anyway. Like like Die Hard was probably his first movie. No, he wasn't. Um, Or he might have been on the stage. But anyway, I um, I was about to say, I was about to say something about the fire. The fire, the actual fire itself in this movie is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> and that's obvious, it's a fire. But, like, they make such a big point. Of it's so terrifying that you. a woman would rather jump out of the building than burn to death. That's right. That was that was funny looking back on it. Like this woman is burning to death, and our first thought is, "I will jump out of this building." They make such a big point though of telling you how difficult this fire is to contain because it started high up in the building. It started on like the eighty-first floor um, of the glass tower, which so really which is hard now called to the Sand Tower. The Sand Tower went yes. Unfortunately, I mean, I say unfortunately, as though I want things like this to. I'm not even going to say that. That one, that one's a terrible thing to say. Forget I ever had a thought, please, <laughs> just for a second. <laughs> there, um, but they do make a they do make a constant point about telling you how dangerous the fire is. They also make a constant point about telling you how much it really wasn't Paul Newman's fault at all, because his drawings were absolutely up to standard and more so. And it was obviously Weasley Richard Chamberlain that ruined it. It's it's using that old Hollywood technique again of making its 
two leads, incredibly all good and pure, and there's nothing possible bad about them, which is an incredibly old Hollywood kind of thing to do, and an incredibly not 70s thing to do when you think about it. Yeah, what it's do very... 70s movies love doing more than anything else? It's making their leads be weirdos. Yeah, like your Dirty Harrys and your Travis Bickles and such. Exactly. Not... Or at least making them complex, like uh, Chief Brody and Jaws. Like a good yeah, exactly. guy, but he's yeah. got that fear of the ocean. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing... There's nothing stopping Paul Newman and Steve McQueen in this movie from just being incredibly pure people. And I think it's obviously because it's those two. Like I said before, it's kind of hearkening back to that old Hollywood style. But I also think, and you mentioned it before as well, the fact that this movie is dedicated to the fire service. How very dare this movie that is dedicated to the fire service portray its fire chief as anything other than absolutely perfect. Which is why Halloween Kills did not dedicate its movie to firefighters. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the slightest. The firefighters exclusive screening of Halloween Kills many shocked faces were there. (laughs) Oh dear. Oh I don't know. Oh dear. What an idiotic thing that was. Thank you for just bringing that to my attention again. <laughs> stupid. Some people are just really quite stupid, Nolan, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I should. We should also mention this movie won a few Oscars. I imagine Best Visual Effects. Uh, it won best. It won actually won best editing and best cinematography. And I agree with the cinematography. I do think it's a really well shot movie. Like I said before, some of the the real scale of the tower, the scale of the event, the miniatures and the matte paintings used in the set are also and, amazing. Exactly. It's a. It is a beautifully shot movie. I miss it, using miniatures in films. Right, you don't get them. There's a, you know, there's the, there's that line between kind of photorealism and believability, and you need to be on the believability more than the photorealism because you, any CG thing can be photorealistic. I it will say always this, look CG, and it will always look CG. It will never be believable. But you can have something that you know isn't real. But it feels it in the movie because it's lifelike or it's got a certain depth to it. It's like the differences between the ships in the original Star Wars and Disney Star Wars. Quite, yeah. It's also, I would say, the difference between something like I don't know, uh, well, like, to use very broad ideas, the difference between practical effects and CG in horror movies. You can feel the weird latex rubberiness of the thing, but you can't feel random CG monster number three from the new movie by 
wacky weird director who probably has a criminal record number four called the ghoul or whatever it's called you know what i mean this kind or of nonsense another talking about another one i would bring up is uh, the shark in jaws compared to any other shark movie yeah you can tell that shark isn't a real shark but my god does it feel real in the movie Yep, whereas the CG sharks in current movies, they just they move too fast, they don't feel realistic at all, and they just feel like monsters. Exactly. Exactly. The, and that's, the Meg. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. I will never forgive myself and others, no one, and others, for the, the, the one movie I ever watched in what a lot of people consider well what is i actually think the biggest single cinema screen in the world and what many consider a pretty flawless cinema screen in the cinerama dome in hollywood the one movie i ever watched there was was the meg no one <laughs> It was, it was, it was, it was, could have watched anything. There's another difference there. The different, the why I don't like a lot of modern shark movies nowadays is that specifically with the Meg, the Meg was boring. Whereas I think the same thing appeals to modern disaster films. I watched them to watch stuff get destroyed, but my God, the moon movie was boring as fuck. <laughs> you could throw you all the fancy science words at me or whatever, but it was so fucking boring. Yeah, and I you know, I I will agree with that. I don't think you feel bored once in the Tower and Inferno. You 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 are you are enjoying this. While it does feel long, while it does at times feel somewhat poorly paced. I'm never bored. I'm always enjoying what I'm seeing because there's so much that th there is interest there. It's not on the level of the tower of the of the Poseidon adventure for me. It isn't that is my apex of seventies disaster movies personally, but it's not that far behind. It really isn't. And it is, it, it, you know, it's still, still a pretty special movie when you think about it, and certainly in a monumentally influential one. And that's a, just another element that we love to discuss on this show: is uh, you know these older movies' influence on what came after. I certainly think we've delved into that today. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, would you be up for checking out the other disaster movie that came out a month after this called Earthquake, which, according to IMDb trivia, many considered a double feature of, which they named, I'm sure it's here somewhere. This was just a funny bit of trivia that I found. Uh, yes, the Shake and Bake double feature. That's an incredible name. <laughs> we should have done that, Nolan. Why didn't we do the Shake and Bake double feature with Earthquake? Wait a minute, Earthquake? Would that be the, the, the weird Universal Studios ride thing? Yeah, I think that's what it's based off. Is that what it is? 
Okay, well, maybe we should maybe we should watch Earthquake. But also, Nolan, I refuse to act. No, I refuse to allow you to pick anything from the seventies for another month, two months. <laughs> Stop it. As much as I like 70s movies, they're supposed to be once in a while on this show. And you've been becoming liberal with them. Liberal <laughs> with the 70s movies. Liberal in 70s is a sentence that should never go together. <laughs> much like... Try telling that to movies. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> liberal in the 70s yes um it's not the only it's not political no nah, the only lib clint eastwood cares about is libertarians that's probably true that is probably true if not even a joke that's just a fact well, i don't know if it's a fact i mean do you study up on clint eastwood's political beliefs a lot yeah they come up every time i see a movie that's released with him in it <laughs> I mean, it is. There's always some obvious. guy saying like, "Oh, he's this lib libertarian guy who yelled at a chair." Like, okay, cool. <laughs> That's unusual, to be honest. No, I'm I'm now just picturing Clint Eastwood yelling at a chair when I should be picturing heroic Paul Newman and heroic Steve McQueen and. Older than normal, with very nice, thick-rimmed glasses, William Holden. And, and non-dancing Fred Astaire. I tell you, Fred Astaire does do some dancing in this movie. You weren't paying attention close I know enough. He, he does ballroom dancing, but so does every other actor in the ballroom scene. What does Fred Astaire... Is Fred Astaire not a ballroom? Well, he does do some ballroom dancing, doesn't he? He's a tap dancer, sure. There, the movie does not pause for a moment to have a Fred Astaire dance sequence. It doesn't, but it should do, because it nearly does. Just him jumping through the fire, round. jumping through and twizzling through the blaze to save people. He does a couple of twizzles round with Jennifer Jones, I think it is, who plays his... Uh, his love interest in this movie. This the was sadly character. her last movie. Yes. Um, he gets her cat or something at the end. He does get her cat at the end, yes, because she she's one of the people who doesn't make it to the end of the movie. And that's quite sad, actually. I don't like seeing Fred Astaire cry. I think the last time we talked about Fred Astaire, I mentioned how... Um, my appreciation of him has just developed significantly, I think, in, in 2021. And, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't like seeing my my old Hollywood guys, or, or anybody from my old Hollywood guys or gals, shall we say, or, or anybody in between. I don't like seeing them cry, no one. And it, mm. was, uh, it was sad, actually, that, that was probably actually, you know, you didn't even really see the the death, did you? But that was probably my favourite death scene in the whole movie, that, that one right at the end, because you just kind of find out. And it's very emotional. It's very sad. It's not big. It's not showy. It's not flashy. It's not people screaming, running around on fire, jumping out of buildings, doing cartwheels, as you like to say, when they are doing... Jumping on that weird elevator thing and then that elevator thing breaking because the elevator knows you're a prick. Yes. Um, 
I will ask you this question, actually, before we do wrap up this episode of It's a Wonderful Podcast. Nolan, how do you feel about scenic elevators? Scenic elevators? You mean the thing that Chamberlain jumps on? I mean, the elevators on the side of the building that allows you to see the entire view. I hate them. They should not (laughs) exist. Like the I don't want to. I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel like I'm falling upwards. <laughs> you are very much into internal elevators. I can only imagine. Yes, indeed. Fair enough. I kind of gathered that from your fear of heights discussion from before. Nolan, do you have anything else you would like to say about 1974's The Towering Inferno? Uh, well, thankfully, we haven't roasted this movie. It's a burning yes. good time. Uh, get all the jokes in now. Get a hot ticket to see it. Uh, I think I'm, that's I'm done. It. I think you burnt out. You burnt out I'm with burnt jokes out. there. No? Hey, <laughs> Morgan's competent as well. Anyway, <laughs> I think there we go for this episode of It's a Wonderful Podcast. We have, of course, been talking about The Towering Inferno from 1974. Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway, William Holden, uh, Richard Chamberlain, Susan Blakely, we didn't even mention who plays Richard Chamberlain's loveless wife <sighs> and, the, and the daughter of William Holden. Why did we not mention Susan Blakely? She's pretty good in this movie, but again, she kind of doesn't get enough to do which is unfortunate because we spend too much time fighting fire with Steve McQueen. Stupid, over-blonde Steve McQueen. (laughs) Get some... I mean, I say that, but, you know, look at what colour is even my hair. I don't know. People don't know. You're blonde at the minute still. That's nice. It will be pink soon. Yeah. You should cut your hair like Steve McQueen's in that weird half-bowl cut that he has. I have already cut my hair enough. No, in in the weird half bowl cut of Steve McQueen, though, no, you haven't. So, yeah, I would like to see that. I think yes. you should just cut your hair like random actors from a long while ago. I think that would be entertaining for me. Only do it for me. Don't do it for you. Just do it for my benefit. And I think you should grow your hair out. Mm, I, I no. want to see like I want to see like Fallout Boy era Morgan. Mm, that sounds horrible. I'm not doing that. Going to I like wouldn't. a My Chemical Romance concert, mm, losing no. his mind at Welcome to the Black Parade. Well, look, I'm not going to say anything bad about that song. I'm not, but I, I, the the hair doesn't sit right with me these days, Nolan. It just uh, doesn't on my head. So there we go. Towering Inferno. Who else is in the movie? Fred Astaire's in the movie. Jennifer Jones in the movie. Robert Vaughn from The Man from Uncle is in the movie. Robert Wagner's in the movie. Who who killed Natalie Wood? What a wanker. Oh, Wagner. Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on who you believe. Sorry, sorry. Allegedly may or may not have killed Natalie Wood. And also an actual... No, he didn't actually get convicted for the stupid murder either, did he? 
Stupid OJ Simpson. <laughs> OJ Simpson from the movie. Oh God, you're full of you're full of questionable people in this movie. The remake of this movie will star Amber Heard, Jared Leto, and oh, fucking... dear. <laughs> probably all the weirdos nobody likes. Anyway, episode two hundred and six of It's a Wonderful Podcast is there and there. It is not the only show we have. On the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed, though, of course, this show is every Friday. This is where we celebrate old movies, we show them love, we give them a voice, and yeah, we we just we we love talking about them. That is why we do this show on a Friday. We also have Morgan hasn't seen on a Wednesday, where me and Janine, you know, Janine forces me to watch things I haven't seen. We are still on. Our, so I say still on. We, we've barely even started, Nolan. We're in our Star Trek series. This week, we talked about Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, and Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home. Which one do you prefer of those two? Whatever one's the odd-numbered one. Mm-hmm. The Search for Spock? No, 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 no. It's all numbered Star Trek movies are bad. Even numbered ones are good. I disagree with that. I like the search for Spock, Nolan. I did. It well, you're was gonna be, fun. I don't know if you've heard what happened to Leonard Nimoy, but you're going to be searching for a very long time. That's not very nice. <laughs> That's a horrible thing. But yes. Just you wait till we get to the joke section. Oh, for God's sake. We are talking Star Trek on Morgan Hasn't Seen. And while Machine Mondays, the great Schmodown show with Janine the Machine, has taken a break, we have said a sad but fond farewell, not forever, to Machine Mondays. We are um, throwing ideas around to fill in its Monday slot, so never fear. Monday shows of some interesting and probably hilarious degree will be back shortly, so please keep an eye out there. You can find the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed, of course, on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Amazon Music, and all the other places we have the It's a Wonderful Podcast Patreon. If you want to support us that way, go to patreon.com slash it's a wonderful one and find the tier that is right for you. We also have the YouTube channel, It's a Wonderful Podcast, on YouTube for all the watch-alongs and the live discussions and the fun videos we have there and have coming to there as well. You can find the show on Twitter at It's a Wonderful One. Find me on Twitter at the Purple Don with a three instead of the E in the because three is, of course, the magic number on Instagram at just the purple don Nolan. All your wonderful stuff is where you can now follow me on Instagram at the Glasgow Kid. I've got a new comedy Insta account. You want to book me for gigs? Get on that. You can also find me at Nolan Dean Seven on Twitter and the Glasgow Kid One on Twitter. Go follow my TikTok page for some new jokes. I just put my Kevin Spacey one up on my TikTok. It's very funny. Go check that out. I'm sure I've told you that one many times before, haven't I? Yes, I think you. I think it was on your last episode of this show. Yes, well, uh, lucky for you, I've got some new jokes about celebrities that I'm testing out ahead of my gig at the stand next month. 
Well, I think it is about time then for me to say thank you everybody for listening to this episode. We love you. You're the best. Until next time, I will say goodbye and ask Nolan to see us out. Sadly, we couldn't put on our production of Macbeth this year because the actor who we cast as Macbeth got COVID. As the person who was inside the play and part of it, I was devastated. But as the one playing Duncan, I was delighted. Yes, <laughs> yes. Amber Heard has been in the news recently, says she's very good at playing villainous woman. I'd no idea she'd been taking method actor tips from Jared Leto. <laughs> You know, he's in a band called 30 Seconds to Mars, which coincidentally is the planet that I think he's from. (laughs) (laughs) During an interview about Morbius, he said he connected to the character immediately, not requiring any method acting. And he was playing a fucking vampire. (laughs) Recently, uh, he even did a Nirvana cover where he dressed as Kurt Cobain for the whole thing. And I thought that that was completely tasteless that he didn't go all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, no one has had the right frame of mind to cast him as the lead in a Jeffrey Epstein biopic. (laughs) (laughs) And now for some more lighthearted stuff. Vegetarians and meat eaters. There's a lot of great veggie options nowadays, but you still get the odd guy who's like, how could you give up steak, chicken, Turkey, venison, pheasant, partridge, <laughs> lamb, corned beef. Morgan, you probably like corned beef, don't you? you no, like that that, kind of Ron Weasley likes corned beef. No, Ron Weasley hates corned beef. He just always eats it. That's a fact. Yeah, I think there's kind of an old school macho-ness to eating meat. You know, maybe it comes from the Vikings or the Norse gods eating slabs of meat or something. But I was out with a couple of friends from mine from high school and I ordered a veggie risotto. And they all turned to me like, what, a vegetarian risotto? What, are you fucking gay? And I was like, you tell me. You're the one who can't stop going on about how much you love meat. Hey, yes, I like that. That's a good joke. But uh, we're in a new world now. They've got apps for everything. But I went to a place called iFix in Glasgow, and the shopkeeper requested that I buy my drugs elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, a nice little lighthearted one to end on. <laughs> I like it. I like it. There we go. Until next time, guys. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>